Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you to all those who made our Christmas carnival so special and possible over the last two weekends. I see so many faces who poured so many hours into making it possible. I hope you're getting warm and you're thawing out from the cold. It was just an amazing last two weekends. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I want to take a moment to say a special thanks to Jim West. And can you just join me in thanking Jim? Jim poured his heart and soul into this outreach. And uh, when I grow up, I want to have a fraction of the energy Jim has. Just a fraction. It was just an amazing two weekends. So thank you, thank you, thank you, dear church family. Well, before we open God's Word, I want to take a moment just to share some uh, sad personal news. Um, Joanne's dad had been in the hospital for the last uh, nearly two weeks, the last 12 days. And yesterday, uh, he breathed his final breath. And he is with Jesus in heaven right now. He is no longer in pain. And in the midst of our grief, we find comfort in knowing that he is resting and the presence of his Savior. Uh, it's been a very uh, emotional, difficult time for Joanne and her family. And uh, Her dad, Richard Kim, was a true gentleman. And that word gentleman just so perfectly describes uh, my father-in-law. Uh, Joanne's dad came to the United States in the 1960s by himself as a single man. When he came to the United States, he landed in Idaho in the 1960s. And by himself, he landed in Idaho, and he went through pharmacy school. He became a pharmacist after graduating from pharmacy school in Idaho. He made his way out here to Southern California, and for a time, he served as a pharmacist at a store called Fedco back in the day. Then later, he... And Joanne's mom, Grace Kim, together opened up Colima Pharmacy. And for many, many years, they operated this wonderful local neighborhood pharmacy on Colima and Nogales until they retired. And uh, Joanne's dad is survived by Joanne's mom. Um, They would have celebrated their 52nd wedding anniversary the day after Christmas. He survived by his three children, Joanne's older sister, Joanne, and Joanne's younger brother. And he survived by nine beautiful grandchildren. So thank you, church family. Thank you for your love and your support. We are honored and blessed to be part of a church family that knows how to love and care for its members in the deepest, truest way possible. Would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word? Father, you are so good. You are so good in every season. And Father, we thank you for life. And we thank you, God, that you are in control over your creation. And Father, today as we continue in our series, Storyline, your purpose fulfilled through people like us. God, would you open our hearts Open them big. 
convict us through your word so that we would be changed, that we would be more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. This morning we're going to learn about a man who held an important job. He held an important government job. And he was used by God to carry out God's divine purpose in his people. And I trust that by the time we're done today, that you will know what it means to be obedient. We're going to look at a man by the name of Nehemiah and his faithful obedience. In fact, that's the title of this morning's message, Faithful Obedience, the story of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is a historical account of how Nehemiah led the people of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So here's the backdrop. Twenty years after King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, there were two temples in Israel's history. The first temple and then the second temple. And 20 years after King Solomon built the first temple, he died. And then Israel was divided into two kingdoms. We saw that last week, remember? Yeah, the northern kingdom, made up of ten tribes, it took on the name Israel. That was the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, and it took on the name Judah. Both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, had a history of disobedience and idolatry. Keep those two words in mind. A history of disobedience and idolatry. And God's judgment fell on both kingdoms. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And when the southern kingdom was conquered... Solomon's temple, which was in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, was destroyed. And then eventually the Persian Empire, it rose to power and it overthrew the Babylonians. And the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem by the end of the 5th century B.C. And when they returned, the second temple was built in Jerusalem. But then eventually the walls of the city became compromised, and it became vulnerable to attacks from the enemy. And that's the point in history where we see Nehemiah come into the picture. The book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah serving King Artaxerxes of Persia. You see, Nehemiah was amongst the Jews who stayed back in Persia. Even though they were given permission to return back home, Nehemiah stayed back in Persia, and he took on a very important government role. He became what is known as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Being a cupbearer was a highly respected job. It was also a dangerous job. In fact, it was so dangerous, I'll talk about it a little bit in just a minute. But this past week, I decided to do an online search for some of the world's most dangerous jobs. So I thought I'd share a handful of these jobs with you. One of the most dangerous jobs in the entire world is that of being a landmine remover. (laughs) What a job. 
a landmine remover. You know, in war-torn countries, there are still landmines strewn throughout the landscape. And sometimes governments will hire local citizens to remove those landmines. All i got to say is they're not paying them enough, whatever they're paying them. No thank you to that job. Here's another very dangerous job that I thought very, I found fascinating. I'd never actually heard of it before. Maybe you have, but a venom milker. A venom milker. Now, picture this. In order to make anti-venom, you need to start with venom. And in order to extract venom from a snake, here's what you have to do. You have to grab the snake, and then you have to massage the venom glands, wherever those glands are. I mean, I have no idea. So you have to massage the venom glands while simultaneously puncturing a latex that's stretched over a cup with the fangs of the snake to milk the venom. Now, all I know is this. Snakes don't like to be milked. And so the chances are high that you actually extract the venom into your own bloodstream. So it's a very dangerous job. I'll mention one final one. The single most dangerous job in the entire world is working for the logging industry. Being a logger is the single most dangerous job. You have falling trees. You have heavy machinery chainsaws, you have steep slopes, extreme weather conditions, and long, grueling hours. All those combine to make logging the single most dangerous job in the world. Nehemiah, in his day, held one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. He was the cupbearer to the king, and what a cupbearer did was this. Every now and then, the king, who had enemies, would be poisoned by the enemies. The enemies would poison the wine of the king. And so, the job of the cupbearer was to pour the wine for the king, but not hand him the cup, but first take a sip of the wine before he handed it to the king. And so Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He would pour the wine, and then, I imagine he prayed, and then he would take a sip of the wine. If he died, the king would not drink of the wine. If Nehemiah lived, then the king would drink. What a job. But that was Nehemiah's job. He was a cupbearer to the king. And we'll see how God used Nehemiah to fulfill his purpose in the lives of his people. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and make your way to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes after the book of Ezra. Ezra comes after 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And the author of the book of Nehemiah is Ezra. Now you might think, well, isn't it Nehemiah? Actually, it's widely known or understood that Ezra is the author of the book of Nehemiah, even though most of the book of Nehemiah is in a first-person account. Ezra, at that time, was a contemporary of Nehemiah. Ezra was a religious leader. So Ezra was a priest. 
Nehemiah, a layman, a government official. And so that's the backdrop. So in your Bibles, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'll read to you the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, or those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great danger and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And despite the efforts to rebuild them, they remained in ruins, get this, for almost a century and a half. Nearly 150 years, the walls remained in ruins. Talk about an unfinished project. You know, doesn't that sound familiar? I know that in our lives sometimes what happens is this. When, when we get used to something, we just kind of dull to the ruins. We just kind of get dulled and our senses become just kind of dulled with all the, uh, the ruins around us. For example, if you own your garage and if things pile up in your garage, you start to live with it. Right, these pile up, and you just kind of walk around the piles. And as the piles get bigger, you just walk around those bigger piles. You just kind of get dull to all those things around you. In your homes, when the paint starts to chip, you just get used to it. You think, well, if I repaint, it's going to chip again. So you just kind of leave it. The carpet gets dingy, and so you start to live with all the imperfections. But what sometimes happens is this. When someone with fresh eyes comes and sees all the things that can be improved, that person can serve as a catalyst. And that person can bring passion and leadership and inspiration so that our projects don't go unfinished. And for 150 years, the walls remained ruined because there was no catalyst until Nehemiah came on the scene. And because of Nehemiah's faithful obedience to God's will, God used Nehemiah as an instrument to bring about change, change that was needed for his people. So this morning, what I want to do is this. I want to share with you four characteristics of Nehemiah's faithful obedience. Four characteristics that brought about change. First, Nehemiah's faithful obedience was seen through his attention to God's Word. His attention to God's Word. In a moment, I'm going to read to you a passage in Nehemiah 8. Before I do that, I want to take a moment to share some exciting news about our next series, which begins on New Year's Day. Now, keep in mind, next Sunday, on Christmas Sunday, we have one service at 10 a.m., Two weeks from today, 
we'll resume our normal 9 o'clock and 1045 services. And we're kicking off a brand new five-part series on the doctrine of God's Word. I'm excited for this series. We're going to title this new series, Build Your Life. God's Word as the Lasting Foundation for Growth. And I think there's no better way to start a new year than to kick off a series with the doctrine of God's Word so that we can learn how to build our life on the lasting foundation of God's Word. Nehemiah was faithfully obedient to God's Word. Let's read in chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and all the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So verse 3 tells us that Ezra the priest, he read from the law of Moses from daybreak until noon. That's about five to six hours, the word of God was being read, five to six hours, and people gathered to hear the reading and the explaining of God's word. And guess what? These people, they didn't have nice cushioned chairs to sit on for five, six hours. They didn't even have hard, unpadded chairs. These people stood for five to six hours for the reading of God's word. It was an amazing scene. Now, have you ever been to a sporting event or a concert where you've stood the entire time? Now, I have. Many times, in fact. When I was a student at UCLA, we'd go, yes, 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 amen, right there. When I was a student at UCLA, we often go to football games and basketball games, and there was this unspoken rule If you sat in the student section, you couldn't sit for the entire game. That sounds odd, but if you sat in the student section, you were not supposed to sit. If you sat even for a minute, you would get a dirty look. But it's okay because we didn't mind standing the entire game because we were so into the game and we were cheering on our Bruins to beat those Trojans. I see some Trojans out there, right? And we cheered on our brooms to beat those Trojans, which didn't often happen in football. But it happened a lot in basketball. By the way, I'm outnumbered, even in my own family. My older sister graduated from USC. My youngest brother graduated from USC. My second brother, he didn't go to USC, but he roots for USC. I think my mom even roots for USC, because she likes their colors better. But... So I'm outnumbered in my own family. But anyway, I love the end of verse 3 where it says, All the people listened attentively. Now, I know you all listen attentively on Sunday mornings. Okay? And some of you sometimes 
Some of you are in such deep thought, you have to close your eyes. And I know you're nodding in agreement. I know it. Lisa, that's what I tell myself. So I know you all listen attentively. But all the people stood there for five, six hours. And did you catch it? It said all the men, women, and the others who could understand. Who are the others? The others are the children. Those in the upper elementary ages, maybe middle school ages, those who are old enough to understand, and our kids are bright, they understand at a young age. They stood there next to their parents for five to six hours listening to the word being preached and listening to the word being explained. And here's what happened. As the people stood there for five to six hours, soaking in the word of God, it penetrated their hearts, and it reminded them of how far they had strayed from God's word. The word of God has the ability to penetrate our hearts, And the Word of God convicts us and it reminds us of how far we strayed from God's will. The Word of God convicted these men, women, and their kids of their sin. And many of them who stood there for five, six hours, they were so affected that it saddened them deeply, it says. But what's so remarkable is Nehemiah's response to their sadness. Look at Nehemiah's response in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, Nehemiah recognized that the people were truly repentant. They were saddened by their own sin. He knew that they were sorry. So he said, no, go, don't dwell on your sadness. You are truly repentant. Now find joy in the forgiveness of the Lord. Isn't it true that we can usually tell when someone is truly repentant? We can tell. And we can also tell when we spot a forced apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I wouldn't have done it if you didn't do that. I'm sorry. But when we're truly repentant, here's what happens. We feel miserable. Not because we got caught, but because we've wronged someone. We feel absolutely grieved because we have wronged someone. And it affects us deeply. 
The Word of God convicts us of our sin. And that's why it's important to take in the Word of God here on Sunday mornings. That's why I commend you for being here on Sunday mornings to gather corporately to hear the Word of God being preached, to hear the Word of God being explained so that the Word of God will penetrate your hearts and convict us of our wrongdoings. So I encourage you to continue your, your gatherings during the middle of the week with your life groups, with your small groups, with your adult Bible fellowships, with your accountability groups, and continue with your personal devotions. Nehemiah showed his faithful obedience through the attention of God's word. Secondly, Nehemiah, he showed his faithful obedience. It was seen through his devotion to prayer. Attention to God's word and devotion to prayer. The word devotion is a very descriptive word. I love that word devotion. There's this aspect of love, there's this aspect of loyalty, and there's this aspect of enthusiasm, all wrapped up in the word devotion. Love, loyalty, enthusiasm. One of the greatest characteristics of Nehemiah was his devotion to prayer. Let's go back to chapter 1 now. We'll go back and look at verses 5 and 6. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant and is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Did you notice here in verse 6, at the end, Nehemiah includes himself in this confession. Even though he himself was not guilty of the wrongdoings, he includes himself as one who had committed sins against God. Here's the thing. When we disobey, when we disobey God, there's a ripple effect. My spiritual well-being impacts the family of God. Your spiritual well-being impacts the family of God. And by the way, when there, are two, when there are two members of the family of God who are in conflict with each other, it doesn't stay between the two of them. It affects the entire family of God. And sometimes that's difficult for us to understand and accept because we live in an individualistic society where uh, the focus is so much on personal freedoms and personal decisions. You know the Eastern culture of the Bible? The Eastern culture had much more of a collective view of sin and shame. So if you did something wrong in the Eastern culture, you not only brought shame to yourself, you brought shame to your family, you brought shame to your village, and you brought shame to the entire nation. In 1992, at the Winter Olympic Games, Midori Ito 
won the silver medal in women's figure skating. After the competition, she was interviewed. And this interview went throughout Japan. And in the interview, she apologized to the nation for winning silver and not gold. Now, of course, there was nothing for her to apologize for. I mean, she won silver. But you see, the expectations and the pressures were so great. And her mindset, which is often the mindset of certain cultures in the East, is a collective mindset. And that was the mindset also in the Bible. So when Nehemiah confessed the sins of the nation before God, he included himself. He was part of that. So Nehemiah's devotion to prayer was not only for his own spiritual life, it was for the sake of the nation as a whole. That is why, church, while personal prayer times are good and important, corporate prayer times are equally important. Don't forsake corporate prayer times and think, I'm good if I just go pray by myself. Corporate prayer times are equally important because what happens is when you listen to the prayers of others, it can convict you of your own shortcomings. Maybe not all of you know this, but here at our church, every first and third Sunday of the month, the first and third Sundays of the month, at 8 a.m., we gather downstairs for corporate prayer. If you've never been to one of our corporate prayers, I invite you to come. And if, if you can't come to all of them, just come at least once and just try it out. Every first and third Sunday at 8 a.m. And here's the good news. We're going to give you a break on the first one, because the first one would normally be scheduled for New Year's Day, January 1, but we're taking a break that day, and our next morning prayer will be on the third Sunday of January, January 15. Mark your calendars. We would love to see you downstairs. This morning we gathered for prayer. And I'll tell you, when we're praying together as a group, something special happens. And for me personally, I think... I think I preach better when I hear prayers, right? Because God is listening to these prayers. He's answering these prayers. So I encourage you, come and join us on January 15. And come out. Make it a habit or come anytime you can. The first and third Sundays of the month at 8 a.m. Verse 6 says that he prayed day and night for the people of Israel. That's how much Nehemiah prayed. Prayer was such a priority in his life, so much so that I want you to see something very amazing in chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, So the king asked me, 
Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is remarkable. King Artaxerxes notices Nehemiah's face. The sadness was written all over his face. And the king asked Nehemiah an amazing question. Nehemiah, what is it you want? The king himself asked Nehemiah, what do you want? Nehemiah could have anything he wanted. The king was indebted to Nehemiah. And here's what's remarkable about Nehemiah's response. The king asked, what is it you want? Nehemiah says, time out. I'm going to go pray. So Nehemiah makes the king wait so he can go talk to the king of kings before he gives the king his answer. And when he finished praying and seeking God's will, he asked the king if he could return to Jerusalem to help lead the charge to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We can learn so much from Nehemiah's prayer life, can't we? There's a third characteristic. Nehemiah's faithful obedience was seen through his steadfastness in the face of opposition. His steadfastness in the face of opposition. Did you know that not everybody was happy with Nehemiah's work to rebuild the wall? He had critics. Let's turn to chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 3. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Ha! They ridiculed him. They spoke badly about him. They even used scare tactics on Nehemiah. But guess what? Nehemiah, he remained steadfast. And by the way, I want to say this. It's not because Nehemiah went out looking for a fight. Maybe you know some people like that. They're always looking to pick fights wherever, wherever they go, right? They're always arguing, and sometimes they're even using God's name to justify their ungodly behavior. Don't do that. That wasn't Nehemiah. He wasn't out to pick fights. He was simply doing the Lord's work. And when we do the Lord's work faithfully, sometimes we will face opposition. In the New Testament book of James, chapter 1, 
verses 2 and 3, it says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. I can just picture James sitting down to write his letter and thinking about his brother. Do you know who his brother was? Jesus, his Savior. And I can think and picture James and how emotional he must have gotten knowing how much his brother suffered. You see, because when James wrote his letter, he wasn't writing a hypothetical situation. When he said, count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, he knew that he could easily suffer for his faith. He knew that he himself could die for his faith. And sure enough, James died for his faith. He was stoned and brutally beaten. Not only had James counted the cost of following Jesus, he counted it a joy to suffer for him. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.14, writes this, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We usually associate blessings with something good. When something good happens to us, right? We share it with friends. Oh, I got a new job. I feel so blessed. Oh, we purchased a new home. We're so blessed. I got into that college. I feel so blessed. Nehemiah faced opposition. We will face opposition. And sometimes that opposition might even come from within. And when we face that opposition, will we respond like Nehemiah? The Word of God says if we are insulted because of Christ, we are blessed. Nehemiah faced the complaints from the people of God. Moses knew all about that. So the next time we face opposition in our own lives because of our faith, here's what we do. We don't get upset. We don't get worked up. When someone hurls insults at us, here's what we do. As hard as it is, we say, I'm blessed. the hardest thing that we can do. It's the hardest thing. I imagine you've been there. I've been there. We've all been there. When someone hurls insults at you, when someone shares lies about you, when someone degrades you, our first reaction is, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to make things right and let that person know, no, you are wrong. The hardest thing that we can do is the best thing that we can do. 
and say, I am blessed. No, 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 we have to, we have to make it right. They need to know. Guess what? Every one of us will go to our graves being misunderstood in some way. And when we stand before God, and if we've been faithfully obedient, He'll say, Child, I got your back up here in heaven. I know. I know what you went through. And you're going to enjoy glory here in heaven, even if you didn't get it there on earth. So church, remain steadfast. I look out here and I see so many steadfast people. Many of you have been part of the faith and part of our church for years and decades. And many of you have been through all the seasons of church. You've been through all the seasons over the years. And you've remained steadfast. It's one of the most admirable qualities of a child of God. Those who remain steadfast, persevere, endure, all for the glory of God. That was Nehemiah. That could be us as well. This is a fourth and final example. Nehemiah's faithful obedience was seen through his submission to God's purpose. Submission to God's purpose. That's the name of our series, after all. Storyline, God's purpose fulfilled through people like us. When we think of the Old Testament and all the people in the Old Testament to model our lives after, Nehemiah is a good one. He is a good one. He was attentive to God's word. He was devoted to prayer. He was steadfast. But we cannot forget, as we study the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is actually not the main character of this book. The main character is God. Nehemiah is simply the vessel. You see, it was God himself who rebuilt the walls. It was God himself who used even, even the enemies to bring his people to repentance. Throughout God's divine plan, the wall was completed. Through God's divine plan, the people were brought to their knees in repentance. God was the orchestrator. Nehemiah, simply the vessel. He obeyed and he did his part. You and I will never fully understand God's sovereign plan and how it works out and all the intricacies and the details. We'll never fully understand this side of heaven. But that's okay. Here's what we can do. Here's our responsibility. Our responsibility, like that of Nehemiah's, is simply to obey. That's it is to obey. King Saul 
Israel's first king was given a mission by God. And King Saul failed that mission. And when he tried to justify his actions to the prophet Samuel, Samuel had a word for Saul from the Lord. You know what that word was? Samuel's word to Saul from the Lord was this, to obey is better than sacrifice. Nehemiah gave his life in faithful obedience to the Lord. He stands as a model for each and every one of us. Would you bow with me? To obey is better than sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for orchestrating the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Thank you for the faithful obedience of your servant Nehemiah. And thank you, Lord, that you give us people in the Bible, people just like us, to remind us that you are the central figure and that you desire to use us to fulfill your purpose. Thank you for this season, Lord. Thank you for the birth of Christ. As we celebrate his birth, as we are reminded that he came as a baby to grow up, to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, God, that you are a redeeming God. We thank you, God, that you have called us to yourself. And I just pray that this season, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of all the gatherings, that we would not forsake our worship of you. That we would center our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ this season. We give you all glory, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.